Good morning. I think Dan is right. The Word of God is the best thing we have. Um, it is God's wisdom, God's light uh, to our feet in this land of darkness, this world of darkness and deception. Um, there's a lot that opposes us, you know, um, as we go to work, as we go to school. Um, everywhere where the Bible isn't is kind of a statement, you know. It's kind of a message being preached that it's actually not needed here. Um, that what we have is sufficient. And um, that is just not true. Like, God is the meaning and purpose for everything. You know, it's like everything has come from God and, and everything goes back to him in this sort of cycle of worship. And um, so it's so important that we gather together and this is what makes fellowship really, really crucial. It's like we need that. We need to be reminded of that, right? We need the, the message that God is the purpose of life. We need that. And we need to hear it as much as, as we can. And um, so I want to encourage you. It's great you're here today, and it's great whoever's joining us for live streaming. That's awesome. Um, I would encourage you if you're sitting at home, and I, I get it. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I went hiking in New Hampshire, and I woke up Sunday morning, and I was sore and tired. And I thought, you know, I could just go into my living room with my pajamas and my cup of coffee and have worship. And you know what? That's not bad. Um, but it's not the best. You know, there's something God does when we gather in person together and we look at each other and we see each other and we encourage each other. There's something special about that. And I don't know, even the messages, there's something different, like watching through a screen you know, is different than being together in person. So I totally understand if you can't come out, that's the best, that's the best option of the two, but the very best is we just need to come back together in this emerging post-COVID world. We need to come back together as the church. And I would encourage you too, if you're not in a Bible study, um, get in one. We've got some great studies going on right now. I know our group are studying the book of Revelation. It's just been a real adventure. Um, meeting at John and Ronna Durnell's house. And I know John Reynolds, they're studying um, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. That's a great book. If you haven't read that, that is such a challenging book. And really equipping us to understand what we believe and why we believe it. And there are other groups as well, and you can just go on the website, the REN website, and check those out. But I would encourage you to do what you can to engage with those. So this morning, we're continuing in the uh, series on the Proverbs, which is really a fascinating book, the book of Proverbs written by King Solomon. And I want you, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Kings chapter 3. And I thought a good place to begin would be King Solomon's prayer uh, he goes before God and he appeals to God. And God's answer is actually the book of Proverbs. 
It enables uh, Solomon to have the, the kind of wisdom that he needed to write that kind of book. So, and this is where it began with this prayer. So I thought this would be a great place to start this morning in 1 Kings chapter 3. And just notice Solomon's attitude here. This is beginning in verse 6. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David. But I am only a little child. Notice the attitude there. I am only a little child. And he would have been standing, of course, in his king robes and, you know, with all his, you know, his entourage, um, all the things that could deceive you into thinking you're really something. You know, and here he is standing before God saying, I am a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. And this really should be our posture right in everything, in marriage. Oh, Lord, I'm a husband and I don't know how to carry out my duties. I'm a little child. I'm a parent. I'm a little child. I don't know how to carry out my duties. Help me. Um, Your servant is... Here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of ours? Notice, give me a discerning heart to be able to distinguish right from wrong. So Solomon did not assume that he knew right from wrong. He came to God for that wisdom, right? For who is able? Who is able? Look at the Lord's answer. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this, and not for long life, or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice. I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart. And you know, James says, and I don't know if you remember in the first chapter of James, says, ask, if you need wisdom, ask God, and he will give it. This is for us too. God's answer. I will do what you have asked. I'll give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never, so there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Now notice what he does next. Moreover, and this is true for us. God says, I'm going to give you wisdom. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for both riches and honor. 
that in your lifetime you'll have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So notice what God does here. He says, I'm going to answer your prayer and I'm going to give you wisdom. But I'm also going to give you what you haven't asked for. Long life, riches, prosperity, health, honor. All these things I'm going to bestow upon you. And this is what I think Proverbs is all about. If you read Proverbs, there's this great difference between the fool who doesn't rely upon God for wisdom and the wise man who does. Right? And the wise man ends up with health honor, prosperity, long life. So the Proverbs were really, it is God's wisdom that then proliferates into our lives, brings flourishing into our lives, where we operate in his world in such a way that we maximize the life that he offers us through his created world. So when you read Proverbs, it's interesting, isn't it? It's all this practical wisdom, like don't move a boundary stone, don't mistreat a worker, You know, it's all this kind of like practical, real life kind of stuff. But I think this is what God means, is that he's interested in those things. And he's interested in your flourishing in those things. That is not a nothing thing. Um, And then the promise ultimately is that you will inherit life forever. You will have the longest life possible in the midst of flourishing. The flourishing begins now and then moves into eternal life. So these Proverbs are very much about how to live a life here and now. And we can't hold that wisdom in contempt. Sometimes we can be hyper-spiritual, right? And we're really tempted to do that, to say, well, those things don't matter. You know, um, having enough money to live doesn't matter. Um... Well, it it does. Those things do matter. And God's interested in your flourishing both in this life and in the life to come. Um, But here, when you look at at the Proverbs, and we can go to Proverbs chapter 1, when you go to the Proverbs, there's this binary thing happening where you are either a fool or a wise person. It's, It's either one or the other. Um, and the outcomes for the fool are tragic. And in reverse, the outcomes for the wise person is incredibly rich and blessed. Some of the things um, of the outcomes of being a fool, according to, and I just went through the Proverbs, and I was like, okay, what's the outcome of a foolish life? Here are some of them. Anxiety, misery, poverty, ruin, disgrace, decay, destruction, smoke in the eyes, ensnared, trouble, punishment, heart weighed down, hated, Misfortune, wrath, frustration, blocked with thorns, disaster, fall, contempt, death. 
But here are the outcomes for the man of wisdom. And he seeks it from God. Health. Nourishment. Favor. Prosperity. Peace. Joy. Blessed. Safe. Deliverance. Reward. Honor. Gladness. At home. Secure fortress. Flourish. Something really good about that word. Flourish. The tent of the upright will flourish. Proverbs 14.11 Love. Faithfulness. Find mercy. Cheer. Who likes cheer? Come on. Come on. When you, when you come into a cheerful household, that, that's where God is. It's like there's laughter, there's happiness, there's trust, there's security, there's joy. You know, that's going to be the banquet in heaven. There's going to be laughter. There's going to be joy. There's going to be just, oh, this is so good. So good to be here. Cheer, immortality, healing, thrive like a green leaf. Rescued from trouble, refreshed, attainment of life. Notice it's just the polar opposite of the other. So the Proverbs are serious because we've got some serious alternatives here. Um, But as Christians, we need to grab a hold of this because the world doesn't think you need God for those things, right? The world thinks we can have those things without God. That God is unnecessary to a well-ordered, happy, fulfilled life. You don't need God for those things. But according to the Proverbs, you don't, without God, you will not have those things. Those things will not be in your life. Long time or short, those things will be removed from your life. Um, now, that's not an accident that we've gotten to this place. Okay, it's not an accident that we don't have Bibles in our public schools. Okay, if, if we were to think that knowing God and his ways was crucial to a successful, prosperous, prosperous happy life, we would have Bibles in every classroom. Okay, we do not find Bibles in boardrooms of great corporations. If we believed that God's wisdom is fundamental to the flourishing of human relationships everywhere, we would have Bibles in every boardroom. Right? If we believed that God was essential for true wisdom, true knowledge, True happiness. There would not be a university in this country that would not have theology as a fundamental subject for the, for the good and prosperous life. Amen? Amen? But because we don't have those things, 
it is preached everywhere, implicitly, that God is optional. That you can have a good life without God. That you can be a fulfilled, happy person. You can flourish as a human being without God. And it is no accident that we're in this place where we are right now. Okay, we're in this stream starting in about the 1700s that has led to where we are now because there was a time when it was actually believed you could not have God and have those things. Okay, but we're in this place right now for a very real reason. And I'm going to... Who likes philosophy? Okay, four of us. (laughs) Okay. Well, let me warn you, we're going to do a little philosophizing right now, okay? So just bear with me. But it's really important because whoever you are, we're swimming in a cultural set of assumptions, okay? We just are. You can't get away from it, okay? And those cultural set of assumptions affect us every day, how we think, how we feel, what we value, okay? So has anybody ever heard of the Enlightenment in the 1700s? Very influential. And the key thing for the Enlightenment was, and this was, and I'm going to distill it down. If you're a philosophy major, please forgive me because I'm going to way oversimplify this. But the key, if you distill it down to the key thing of the Enlightenment, it wasn't a denial that God exists. Like Thomas Jefferson was a child of the Enlightenment. He believed that God existed. But he also believed that God gave us the ability in our natural selves to be able to discern right and wrong, good and evil. That we no longer, it's not that we, we no longer needed revelation. Okay, that was the thing. We as human beings are fully endowed to manage our own lives, to make our own way, to figure it out. All we have to use is good old common sense. All we have to do is be rational, and we can figure out the good life. We don't need any special book, any special revelation. The book is here, in my heart and in my mind. That's the enlightenment. And it was a revolution of man-centeredness. In fact, it's called... um, that the measure of all things is man. Man becomes this autonomous creature where he now discerns good and evil. He can now go out into the world and make rational choices about what's right and what's wrong. Um, And I honestly think that this is nothing less than eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you remember that? That was the great temptation. And God had said, don't eat from this tree. But in eating from it, you had already grasped for what was forbidden to you. That is to become an autonomous being, determining for yourself good and evil, right and wrong. It's a declaration of independence from God's wisdom. Because in eating it, who do you become like? Do you remember? God. Okay, so this was the great move to put myself on the throne of my life. I will determine for myself, thank you very much, what is good for me. And so this is what the enlightenment is. It's the embodiment of this kind of, I will take my life into my hands and make my decisions. 
In fact, Thomas Jefferson famously took a Bible and he ripped pages out of it. Everything he found that he didn't like and thought was ridiculous, like miracle stories and things like this, he'd would, he ripped them out. And he re-pieced, he put the Bible back together again with what he thought was valuable information. Do you see what's happening there? He's putting himself on the throne. He's now the judge of God's law, and he's determining what is good for me and for everybody else. This is actually embedded in our Declaration of Independence. Listen to this. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. Self-evident. That they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Self-evident? That all men are created equal? How do we know all men are created equal? Where do we get the understanding that all men are created equal? Where do we get that? One father, Adam. We are all children of Adam. We all come from one source. Adam and Eve are our parents. And it doesn't matter if you're black, white, Asian, Hispanic. All races find their source through Adam and Eve. How much do we need that truth today? How much do we need that? When we're pitting ourselves against each other by racial divide, it is not at all self-evident that all men are created equal. It is God-evident. We need God's wisdom, and we're reaping the fruits today of leaving that behind. But it was thought, right? We do not need God to tell us that sexuality should only be expressed inside the safety of marriage between a man and a woman. We don't need God for that. All we need is common sense to figure that out. We don't need God to tell us that he created mankind as either male or female. All we need to do is follow science and reason. We don't need God for that. We don't need God to tell us that children need to be disciplined and taught to respect and honor their parents. That's obvious to any rational person. We don't need God to tell us not to lie to each other or covet our neighbor's husband or wife or keep our marriage oaths or to not commit sexual immorality in all the various ways that are obviously wrong to any rational person of common sense. We don't need God to tell us to be self-sufficient and provide for our own needs as long as we are physically able. Everyone knows that. Do you see that? Common sense. What's rational? We don't need God is the mantra of our day, but we are obviously, from these assumptions, eating the bitter fruit of that idea. We're seeing how reason fails us Common sense is not sufficient. And I'm an example of that in my own life. I grew up in a non-believing home, but moral and rational. Um, 
And so I remember my mother would drag us to church, almost literally, you know. We didn't want to go. And I honestly felt no reason for it. We didn't study the Bible at home. We didn't pray at home. Well, we did pray. What was that prayer? Now I lay me down to sleep. I bless the Lord, my soul to keep. I was kind of, is that how that goes? I can't even. That's how we, every night I would pray that. That was my prayer, right? It was like the words I would say. But it was not, it had no reality in my life. But for some reason, I think this is kind of the thing, right? In our culture, it's like, yeah, I'm going to, we're going to get our kids to church because we're going to expose them to religion. So that's part of our parenting. We're going to expose them to religion. But there's no reality to it. My father didn't go. And so I would, we would be like, for some odd reason, on Sunday morning, it just seemed so arbitrary, we'd just march off to the church down in the center of the New England, in a main town. I'd sit in the basement of that church, and we'd cut out little Jesuses and sheep, and, you know, I'm like, I can't wait to get out of here. We'd finally get back home, and I think it reached a point where my mother was so tired, like, okay, I'm dragging them to church. Like, they don't want to go. We're going to drag them to church, because it seems like the right thing to do. Finally, she said, and I think this is a clearing the conscience kind of thing, I'm going to give you the choice. What do you want to do? Do you want to continue going to church? Now, in, in my, I don't know, 12-year-old brain, I'm thinking, all right, let's see. Let me think this out. I could stay home, sleep in, then play football with my friends till about 2.30, have a late lunch and go back and play some more football. Or I could go to the basement and cut out little Jesuses and sheep for no apparent reason. So what seemed reasonable to me? I employed my common sense, and I made my decision. Think about it. Makes sense. Stay home. No more church for me. I remember being in fifth grade, and we're doing our arithmetic lessons, and I'm bored. You know, it's just like, oh, and I hated math anyway. And we ended up discovering this thing you could do with, like, big pens. You could take the innards out, and it'd be like a hollow tube, right? And then we'd have this clay from one of our, like, art classes. So we'd stash a little clay, and you could make little tiny balls. And you put that in the tube, and you could almost silently just, like, and nail your classmate and sting them almost. It was and they'd turn around, they'd jump. It was great fun. It was great fun. And we'd have these little skirmishes in the middle. You know, Mr. Allen would be up at the board. Yeah, okay, now when you put the parentheses here and you blah, blah, we'd just nailing each other. It's a great time. Now, when you're a fifth, in a fifth grade class like that and you have a choice, am I going to endure these boring lessons or am I going to get into these awesome little skirmishes with spitballs. My reason, my common sense says that's a choice, obvious choice. That's obvious, the choice that I'm going to make. And by the time I got to high school, um, the parties began. And, you know, the way you make your way in high school socially is really sports, right? And kind of knowing where the parties are, knowing where the social events are. That's where you kind of get into the upper strata of the social environment, right? That's where you meet girls, right? And in Maine, we'd have bonfires down these fire roads. And so all the kids would meet down there, and, you know, there'd be a keg maybe, and we'd, you know, this would be a great time. And it's like, well, 
so much fun. And it's like I'm with my friends, and then we talk about the party on Monday and the things we did. And so I could stay home and watch, um, you know, what, was, what were the shows then? Um, Walton's Mountain with my parents, or I could head down the fire road to adventure. What would any reasonable high school person choose, right? Fire road, let's go. Then I enlisted into the Marine Corps, and all those things I turned way up. The drinking, girls, partying, the E-club, you had money, nothing to do with it. They supply everything. I had time, and I had desires, and, and everything all around me was saying, fulfill your desires. I don't know if you've ever been outside a military base, but you can tell you're, you're getting close to a military base. You can tell. There are real signs that, yeah, there's a base coming up, because you'd see, you know, adult magazines, you'd see strip clubs, you're seeing bars left and right, you're seeing motorcycle shops, you're seeing, you know, all the things that cater to the desires of young men. That's what you see outside of a base. And it is, like, so enticing. There's so much to do with all the money you have that you have nothing to spend it on. And I did it. And I went into that because, to me, it made sense. It made sense. Why would I not engage in... In, in pursuing my desires, who is to say that I shouldn't? Who's to tell me? And so I went down this road pursuing my desires. And I'm dating a girl as well. And we have this relationship. And it was working out really well for me. We were having enjoying each other. And I made it clear that there's no long-term commitment here. I'm not ready for that. Um, I think she was hoping for it. Um, so we, she continued to date me, and we continued to go out. And we even talked about, because sometimes we weren't real careful, and we even talked about what would happen in case something happened. And I said, well, it wouldn't make sense to go through with having a child if that were to happen. I'm not ready for that. I plan on going to college. I have plans. I have things I want to do. And a child at this point wouldn't make sense, right? Isn't that right? Do, do you see that? Do you are you with me on that? So if, if something were to happen, we understand what we would do, right? And she agreed. And I think it was a classic case. We were fools, we were fools. And there's, a, there's kind of a, a thing that's said that I think is actually true. That when you're a fool, like a foolish man will use love to get what he wants, which is sex. And a foolish woman will use what, she'll use sex to get what she wants, which is love. And this was no doubt what was happening to us. We were two fools playing with fire. We had no idea what we were dealing with. 
And so I was coming near the end of my time in the Marines, and I, we came home from going out, and we were sitting outside of her apartment. And she said, are you coming in? And I said, no, I don't think so. No, the thing that's weird about that is I always went in. And I saw the look in her eye, like, how come? And I said, you know, I, I think we need, to, we need to end this. I think it's, it's time for us to go our separate ways. And I could see in her eyes. She was hoping for love. And then she said to me, and I'll never forget this, she said to me, you know, I want you to know something. I'm, I'm pregnant. And I said, well, hmm. We, we talked about this, right? We talked about what we would do, that it doesn't make sense. I'm not ready for that. We're not ready for that. We can't, we can't bring a child into this world. It's, it's way too complicated, and it just doesn't make sense. We, ta- we had an agreement. We talked about what we would do. And she went out of the, upset, she went out of, jumped out of the car, ran into the apartment. I chased her. I said, hey, 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 trying to reason with her, trying to reason. Let's put some reason into this. Like, we figured it out. It doesn't make sense. This is what makes sense. This is, where, this is what we need to do. And she, weeping, and I'll never finish, pushing me out the door with the door. And I saw, and I'm going to tell you something right now. This was, I believe, where God broke me. Because I saw the bitter and evil fruit of a foolish life. Right? It began early and it grew. And this was the culmination of it. But here is the important point. And I want to go to a passage in James because I think this speaks to this. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to James. And it's James chapter 1. And here's James. And right before this, he said, if you lack wisdom, ask God, right? But he goes on to say, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil. I'm in in verse 13. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when... By his own, now the NIV has evil desire, but that's not in the Greek. The Greek is simply desire. But each one is tempted when by his own desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. In sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So the first thing you have is desire. And here's the thing that's true about us. God has designed us with desires. We are creatures. And these desires are good in God-given. Like we have desires for food. We have desires for intimacy. We have desires for friendship. 
We have desires to achieve. We have desires for honor. These are not bad things. These are God-given desires. Um, But when desires take hold, and this is what I think happened in my life and happens to anybody who's not in God, is your desire becomes your God. It becomes your deity. And so what happens is your common sense and reason gets dictated to by your desire. So what makes sense to you is what coheres with your desire and will fulfill your desire. Okay, am I making sense from my illustrations of my life? Because my reason was engaged, but my reason was engaged to fulfill my desire. Okay, and this is what I think James is talking about. Okay, it's not evil desire, it's just desire. Okay, so there's this but, but it becomes evil when it gains ascendancy and controls your life. And when that does that, it becomes sin. Okay, so if we think about it like this, eating is not bad. But obsessing over food becomes gluttony. Right, drinking, I don't believe, is bad. But when you obsess over drinking, it becomes drunkenness. Sexual expression is not bad. But outside of God's bounds, it becomes sexual immorality and lust. So what happens here is we have these desires, and it's important to acknowledge this. These desires are not bad. But what we need is God's wisdom. Okay, it's God's wisdom that cuts, the, cuts your desire from sin. It keeps you from sin. God's wisdom is on the throne and keeps you from that desire moving you into a sinful expression of your desire. Does that make sense? Am I making any sense right now? I'm, I'm trying to see how important it is that God's wisdom, and it is indispensable to a good life. Because you'll either have God on the throne, communicating to your, informing your reason, informing your sense or you'll have your desire on your throne, on the throne, informing your reason and your sense. And this is where we can say common sense. It's just not enough to say common sense. Because what is common sense for somebody who does not know God is very different from common sense from somebody who does. It's almost like they're different worlds sometimes. And this is where we have a hard time communicating with each other because we have different reference points for where we're coming from. But this is the thing, and this is the thing that's so important about wisdom from God, is that God channels these desires in healthy ways, healthy expression. And so we become fully human, and I think that's a great way of putting it, because when we're captive by our desires, we almost become like creatures of instinct, right? In fact, Second Peter talks about that, Jude talks about that, false preachers being creatures of instinct, almost animal-like. We're reduced to kind of an animal-like existence of pursuing our desires, our instinctual desires, right? But with God in his wisdom, now our desires are channeled in God-designed ways that make us flourish as image bearers of God. And now we function in his world in healthy and wholesome ways that bring happiness to us, peace to us, Joy to us. You know, it is no accident that it is beyond dispute that the most sexually fulfilled lives are within marriage. Isn't that wild? 
And that's the opposite of what the world would say. Right? But it is, this is the truth. Because this is expressed within God's, the safety and the purpose of God's design. And so if we come back to Proverbs, I'm coming to the end. What is it, 11? Um, this is just so important. Um, Proverbs chapter 1. Here is, here is Solomon saying in chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord, this is a great statement, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is the beginning or the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. But notice it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning. That is, you cannot have true knowledge about life apart from the fear of the Lord. Like the fear of the Lord is the premise. It's the beginning. It's the starting point of a truly wise in life of knowledge and wisdom. In the fear of the Lord, I take to be like, because we wrestle with that, right? Are we supposed to be afraid of God? And I think there is a healthy fear. Like, and an analogy of this might be being afraid of the ocean. Right? It's pretty healthy. Right? And if you were to say, I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to sail the Atlantic. I'm going to, yeah, let's just sail across the Atlantic. The fe- you should fear that. The ocean is a mass expanse, it's tremendously dangerous, it has all kinds, now all kinds of wonderful things to discover, right? Beautiful sunsets, sunrises, catching fish, just, you'd have amazing, it'd be amazing moments, you know, you're riding the waves at your sailboat, and it's just, and it's like, yeah, invigorating. But you don't just go, you don't just buy a boat. Right? We talked about that, how fun it would be to like sail. And Lynn was like, you have to learn how to do it. <laughs> I said, I know. We'd learn how to do it, you know? I think she envisioned me just buying a boat and going out there. It's like, no. It's the fear of the ocean then leads you to come back and say, let's get wisdom. Let's study charts. Let's learn compasses. Let's learn stars. Let's learn how to do this. Let's boom, boom, boom. But it's the fear of it, right? It's understanding the danger of it that leads you to come back to gain that wisdom. Or mountain climbing. You don't just climb Mount Everest. Hey, I'm going to climb Mount Everest. No. You got to get equipment. You got to learn. You got to work out. You got to, this is the death zone where nobody can help you. How are you going to get through that? You got to be prepared for that. And so you come back and you get wisdom about what that's going to mean. Oxygen, fitness, boots, everything that you've got to learn how to get to the top of that mountain and get back safely. You fear the mountain. And there's a real sense in which the fear of the Lord is healthy in that. That is to say, you fear him and so therefore, because he's awesome. He's a consuming fire. He's, he's an awesome God. You don't trifle with him. But he's also a God of amazing treasure and life and light and peace. He's both of those things. You know, so we come to him with wisdom. This is where Solomon is like, I'm a child. Give me wisdom. This is what I need. 
and for me, it's like, so, but what do we do when we, when we screw up? Because we do. How do we, is there wisdom for God, from God in that, in our sin? Because, I mean, this is the, the other thing we all have in common is sin, right? Rebellion. And there is. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his sins does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And there's this important thing of that, again, wisdom, Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Proverbs 15.9, the Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. Proverbs 12.22, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. So when we sin, the first step to remedy that is to recognize you can't conceal it. He who conceals his sins does not prosper. And you can't conceal it because the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. So the first step of a wise person is to confess it, bring it to God, acknowledge it before him. And here's the cool thing that happens there. And I'm not going to go into Psalm 51, but this is basically how David prays. He says, Lord, you are justified to judge me. You're justified when you judge. And so this is the cool thing that happens in confession is that you're now, and we can do this because we're image bearers, you kind of step outside of yourself with the person you've wronged. You become an ally of the person you've wronged against yourself. So when you say to God, God, you are justified when you judge, I have wronged. You're saying to God, you're standing with God against yourself. Lord, I stand with you. I have wrong. I am wrong here. And so because you've justified God standing with him, he returns that to you and says, I justify you. I forgive you of your sins. Um, but it's not that that makes up for our sin. It's not that that makes up for it. How do you make up for it? Right? So for me, how do I make up for what I did to my girlfriend? How do I make up for what I did to that child? How do I make up for that? How do I make up for the pain that was caused there? I can't. But here's the beauty of the truth of God. Jesus Christ in his death has infinite value to make up for all sin. And this was just life changing for me. I couldn't believe it. You're telling me that my sin has been wiped out. You know, that Jesus has taken my sin and cast it over the horizon, never to be seen again. Are you kidding me? Because all I could think of was the pain that I had caused. And how does that ever get made up for? 
It doesn't. Jesus, in his atonement, justifies and cleanses us from unrighteousness and sets us free. We need these truths. We need Proverbs. We need to teach these things in our homes. Fathers need to teach your ch- You need to teach your child. I love how Proverbs begins with the father and the mother teaching the children. Like, this is serious. Life is serious. Come, learn. Learn wisdom. Learn life. Stay away from death. Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Win favor. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, your own reason. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Father, we just so much want your blessing, Lord, upon our lives. And Lord, we just um, grieve, Lord, over a world and even our own lives, Lord, where we have made our desires, we've put our desires on the throne, and we've forgotten about you. But Lord, we're so grateful for your mercy for your goodness, that even now, Lord, we can be wise and return to you and be cleansed and be set on a good path and be refreshed, Lord. Thank you so much. You are the fountain of life, and we rejoice in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.